prepared to do is I wanted to talk about Elijah. It's been a while since we've looked at a little bit of the history. So I propose to start Elijah, and we'll probably do that for a couple of weeks. So I'm in 1 Kings, and I'm going to pick it up in chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa the king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had not been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sigub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. That's by way of setup. We'll pick up Elijah, the first verse of the next chapter, but we sort of need background. So Ahab is the son of Omri, and this is after the division of the northern and southern kingdoms. So Ahab is king in the northern kingdom, and that's during the reign of Asa in the southern kingdom. To sort of give you a time hack, we are not quite 600 years after the crossing of the Jordan coming back from Egypt. Joshua led across the Jordan, and we're somewhere mid-500 to 600 years after that. We've had the reign of David, we've had the reign of Saul, had the reign of Solomon, and then the kingdom divided in half, and of course it mentions Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern, northern half of Israel, and then you have the succession of kings, and, and finally we fetch up with Ahab, and as you can see by the write-up, Ahab is not popular with whoever wrote the book of Kings. In verse 33, And Ahab made an Asherah, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Not a good report about Ahab. One of the things that's happened, and, and we'll see the results of this as we go along, is when Ahab married Jezebel, she was a worshiper of Baal, and when she came down to join his household, if you will, as his wife, she brought her own set of priests with her. And then she started expanding the worship of Baal in the northern kingdom. This got started during the division between the north and the south when Jeroboam, fearing that his kingdom was going to be threatened if Israel kept going down to Jerusalem. When the northern and southern kingdoms were divided, the Torah says, you'll go wherever God puts his name, which at that point happened to be Jerusalem. So Jeroboam said, huh, I've got my own kingdom up here. They've got their kingdom down there. And if my people keep going down there three times a year to worship, eventually 
the nation is going to rejoin and I'm going to lose my kingdom. So what he did is, of course, he set up golden calves at Bethel and Lachish, and he changed the dates of the feast. So you still had all the feasts, but they were shoved a month later so that the dates didn't correspond. One of the things that Jezebel does as she is increasing the penetration of Baal into Israel is she puts, actually Ahab does, but it's at her behest apparently, she starts putting guards along the border so that people can't go down south to worship at Jerusalem like they're supposed to. So going south becomes a perilous kind of a thing. I mean, it would be sort of like if you were on a college campus and you said something that somebody regarded as hate speech. It wasn't really a law, but there were guards there as you went south, and people would make note of the fact that you went south to worship and you didn't worship up here with us, and there would be consequences to that kind of thing. That's sort of our setup. This last little blurb, by the way, as a historical marker in verse 34, in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sigub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And the reference there is back in the book of Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, this is uh, after the conquest, you know, the marching around the walls seven days and blowing the, the ram's horns and so forth. So Jericho has been conquered, and now we're in Joshua 6:26. Joshua laid an oath on them at this time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So when Joshua destroys Jericho, he lays a curse on it. And as I led off, we're not quite 600 years later, this guy Hiel rebuilds Jericho, and in fact, it costs him two sons. I don't know this because it's not scriptural, but I am expecting that what happened is he sacrificed his two sons. It wasn't that his two sons suffered a terrible construction accident. You know, they're in there schlepping stuff and a rock falls on their head or something like that. I think they were sacrificed. For the foundations, he sacrificed his firstborn, and to finish the city gates, he sacrificed his youngest son, is I think what that's saying. I could be wrong on that because it's not scripture. Somewhere between mid-500 and 600 years after Joshua makes the curse, you have the rebuilding of Jericho. And Jericho is an important place because it's down in the Jordan Valley. It's one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world. And the reason for it is it's down on the fertile plain of the Jordan River, but it's also at the entrance of the wadi that goes up to the central ridge in Jerusalem. So it's on a major east-west route. So Jericho is a pretty strategic place. And the idea that it would be rebuilt at some point is perfectly understandable. That's all by way of setup. So now we're down to chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, 
As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Elijah is reacting to Ahab. In other words, he's not just sort of randomly walking around pronouncing curses. He is reacting to Ahab, Jezebel, the prophets of Baal, all of that kind of stuff. And he's really upset with the way things go. So he says, no more rain until I say so. So now verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. So he stands and pronounces this curse. No rain until I say so. Well, the way the kings of Israel treat the prophets of Israel is if a prophet says something a king doesn't like, the king is very likely to throw him in jail or beat him until he says something better. Elijah has said, we're not going to reign until I say so. So the natural thing for the king to do is grab him, throw him in a dungeon and say, you better say reign or you're not going to be very comfortable. And the kings of Israel would do that. Just throw him in the jug and work him over until they got a prophecy they liked. So what God tells Elijah is, okay, you're just given this prophecy. If you want that prophecy to stand, you need to get out of town. And he sends him east over the Jordan. And the brook Hereth, uh, nobody knows exactly which one of the rivers it is. There's several major rivers that come in from the east side into the Jordan River. It's likely that this brook where he is hiding is a tributary to one of those three major rivers. Probably the one in the middle could be the one in the north. Elijah beats feet and gets out of town. We're all the way down to verse 6. 1 Kings 17.6 And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. He drank from the brook and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So he's hiding out, living wild and his water supply dries up. Now down to verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Zarephath is on the Mediterranean coast. It is about halfway between Sidon and Tyre, in what is today Lebanon. It is probably on the order of 80 miles from where he was holed up, but he's out of water, so he has to do something. God moves him to Zarephath, and now I'm down to verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, notice the Lord your God. It is not necessarily the case that this woman is a believer in Jehovah. She is a Sidonian after all. And the dominant religion in that region is Baal worship. doesn't say what she is, but I'm just saying it isn't clear. But she says, your God, as opposed to our God, or my God, or the God, or God. 
um, in verse 12 again. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. So she's broke. She's got no means of sustenance. She's got only one meal left, which she's going to go ahead and cook. But she then has no expectations of any sustenance after that. Verse 13, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The jar of flour will not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. What she's asking this widow to do is step out in faith. I'm here. I'm telling you I'm a man of God. I'm telling you that you're not going to starve to death. But in order for all that to happen, you've got to trust enough to give me some of what you've got left. Notice how he describes it. Thus says Jehovah, the God of Israel. Whether this widow herself worships Baal is unknown, but even a worshiper of Baal would understand that Jehovah is a God who has power. It's sort of like when you're a polytheist, I don't worship your God, but I agree that your God is a God. So the idea then that this man is a prophet of God and that God has power to do what he says is something that she would be able to believe regardless of whether she actually worshipped the same God. Now, there's a couple of things going on here, however. One is the tradition of Middle Eastern hospitality. So the idea of a stranger showing up at a well and asking a woman there who has a jar to drive a little water to drink, we see that going all the way back to uh, Rebecca. The idea that a traveler coming to a well where women are drawing water asking to get a drink is something that would have been culturally normal. And similarly, asking to be taken in and fed is something that would be culturally normal. They didn't have 7-Elevens and they didn't have holiday inns all over the place. You found somebody that would take you in. And of course, you gave them some money or something to pay the freight. But the places where you typically lodged were people's homes. And so the idea of extending hospitality to a traveler in that region would have been culturally very normal. The only thing here that's risky, if you will, is the idea of, you know, give me a little cake before you eat your very last meal. That's the part where it gets a bit dicey for this widow. So I'm not on to 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. You remember I said earlier that it was the practice of Israelite kings when they got a prophet that would say something they didn't like, that they would coerce that prophet to get him to say something else. I am of the belief that in the cases where they could get a prophet to say something else, something else is what would happen. In other words, I believe that the words of a prophet have power even when he is not speaking explicitly on instructions from God. For example, you have this, this history of Ahab, the short synopsis of Ahab's reign, 
uniformly bad. Then the next thing you have is Elijah says there won't be any more rain. There isn't any conversation there between Elijah and God, where God says to Elijah, hey, you need to go turn off the rain. That is not recorded in the scripture. If prophets' words come true because of their connections, if you will, the idea of, gee, I got a prophet that just said something I really don't like, so I'm going to go rattle his teeth until he says something I do like, makes perfect sense. That's why God tells Elijah, you need to get out of town. And we'll see later, Ahab is going to come looking for him, and really ticked. So the idea that I'm I'm going to work you over until you change what you said is perfectly in line with the history of Israel and the relationship between the prophets and, and the kings. So all the way down now to verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him, which is to say, he died. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Interesting turn of phrase. What have you against me, O man of God? So, okay, we've established that this guy's a man of God. You know, he's said we're going to be in oil and flour for the duration and we certainly have been, and you've got something against me because you have come to bring my sin to remembrance. I don't know what her sin is. Scripture is silent. But she clearly is of the opinion that the death of her son is um, recompense, if you will, for some sin that she has committed. Now, it may be something egregious. I mean, you know, some really big sin that she did that she's saying, oh, my chickens are coming for Or it may simply be sort of the hair shirt. I'm nothing but a dirty old sinner and, and all of my sinful life has finally come home. And it could be sort of a generalized thing like that. I mean, you have people in the body of Messiah that basically have that attitude. The other thing this is doing is it's establishing precedent in biblical history for the things that Yeshua is going to do. So Yeshua is going to raise people from the dead. Yeshua is going to feed people out of nothing. So here you have this widow whose oil and flour is going to last for the duration of the drought. Well, Yeshua is going to sit down with loaves and fishes and is going to feed a multitude. So the idea of the man of God taking food and multiplying it if you will, is being established back here so that when Yeshua does it, everybody can say, oh, Elijah did something like that. Raise somebody, oh, Elijah did something like that. So you're going to have these connections, if you will, to everything Yeshua does back here in these biblical stories. We're in verse 19. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried her up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to Jehovah, O Jehovah my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Jehovah my God, let this child's life come into him again. And Jehovah listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Verse 23. 
And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. As if flour and oil weren't enough. So I'm going to go ahead and get started on 18, but we'll stop short of the incident at Mount Moriah. So chapter 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. If we just read the text, Elijah turned the rain off, sort of in a fit of pique all by himself. So after three years, God says, eh, enough. You're too stubborn. Time to turn it back on or the damage is going to be too severe. Verse 2, so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, and Obadiah means servant of God, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared Jehovah greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of Jehovah, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Verse 5, and Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. What happens in a drought is you do what's called distress slaughter, which means you slaughter your animals before they die. And so you can sell them for meat. And so what Ahab and Obadiah are doing is trying to find some water so that they can avoid slaughtering their animals. Verse 6. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he, Obadiah, said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. In other words, hey, three years. Ahab is sent to every surrounding country trying to find you. When the people there tell him he's not there, he makes him t- he makes him sign a affidavit that he's not here. And now you waltz in here three years later, and you want me to go tell Ahab that you're here? Uh, I don't think so. The king is ticked, and I don't want to be the one that goes and talks to him. Verse 12. This is still Obadiah speaking. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you. I do not know where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared Jehovah from my youth. In other words, I'm going to go tell this king, who's mad, that I found you. The Spirit of the Lord is going to pick you up and move you somewhere nobody knows. We're going to come back here looking for you. You're not going to be here. The king's going to turn on me and kill me. That's sort of the gist of the conversation, said in a very high panicked tone. 13. Has it not been told, my lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord. How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, 
Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as Jehovah Tebaot lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. In other words, I'm not going to get whisked off by an angel or a flaming chariot or any of that stuff. I'll stay right here to get back. Verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of Jehovah and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And oh, by the way, notice again that except go meet Ahab, the scripture does not record any other instructions to Elijah. Elijah is not told by God, at least in the scripture, I want you to go set up this confrontation. Now what does that remind you of? Fire pans at the old Mishkan, right? Korah's rebellion, remember? And what Moses says is he says, all right, you guys, get your fire pans. Show up at the old Mishkan at high noon tomorrow. And the Lord will show by fire who's his prophet. And the Lord reaches out and toasts what, some of 250 guys standing there with their fire pans. Now, God didn't tell Moses to do that. Moses did that on his own. And what happens next? Do you remember? The next day, they show up and say, you're killing too many people. And God finally turns to him and says, sit down, Moses. You're still my guy, but you're killing too many of my people. So what we're going to do is we're going to do the business with the rods. You know, have each one of these guys bring his rod, and we'll put them all in front of the... Uh, ark, and the rod that buds is the one I have chosen. So all 12 of the tribes bring their rods with their names written on the rod, and they set the rods in front of the tabernacle, and the next morning Aaron's rod is the one that's budded, and it's got almonds on it. So what God does is he shows that Moses and Aaron are his chosen team, and he does it by bringing forth life instead of by slaughtering rebels. Same effect is done. He demonstrates that Aaron and, and Moses are his guys, but he didn't kill anybody. So Elijah here, when he's setting up the confrontation with the prophets of Baal, is doing a Moses at the old Mishkan. And God will, in fact, ratify that. But there's nothing in Scripture here that God says, this is how I want you to do it. I am assuming that much like Moses, who is a Levite and lost his temper, and said, all right, get your fire pans. Show up here tomorrow. We'll see who there's going to, you know, ah! that kind of a, an attitude. Elijah, I think, is doing much the same thing. You know, he gets, he's, he's told by God, all right, you need to go talk to Ahab. And he sees this guy, and he just says, get all your guys to show up here tomorrow. We'll get this settled. God may very well have had an entirely different way of handling the situation. We don't know because it didn't happen. God's backing him up, just like God backed up Moses when he rolled him. You know, Moses looks at Korah and says, all right, God, if these guys die a normal death, I'm not your man. But if the earth opens up and swallows them, I'm your man. The earth opens up and swallows them. 
I don't know that that was God's original plan. Would somebody like to close in prayer?